so there's a lot of stuff going on uh but i i think we're suffering especially in the u.s from the the lack of a a really coherent set of policies to which the entire country is committed Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our Environmental Economics Program. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Paul Joskow, the Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics Emeritus at MIT, where in the past he chaired the Department of Economics and directed the MIT Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research. Paul's research and teaching have been in multiple areas, including, among others, industrial organization, energy and environmental economics, and regulatory policy. He's a distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association, a fellow of the Econometric Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And I'm very pleased to add to that that Paul is also an associate scholar of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. In addition to all of this, he took a leave of absence from MIT and served for 10 years as president and CEO of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation in New York City. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. So before we talk about your current thinking on energy and environment and perhaps climate change policy, I'd like to go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And our, our listeners find this interesting. And when I say go back, I do mean go way back. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in New York City. Uh, I went to New York City public schools for elementary school at junior high and high school. And then for college, you went off to Ithaca, New York. Is that right? I went up to Cornell. Uh, I was attracted there by uh, Alfred Kahn, who was a family was a family friend. And, and so given that you were attracted by Alfred Kahn, then you were in the economics department and you did your bachelor's degree in economics? Actually, I started in the engineering school mm-hmm. uh, for one semester. Uh, and then I, I didn't like it very much, and uh, I switched over and became an economics major. And Fred Kahn was my advisor. I, my recollection is that uh, probably some years after that, I was doing a master's degree before I did my PhD at Harvard. I did a master's degree at Cornell, and I believe, and it was during probably it was during the Carter administration, or maybe it was subsequent to that. But in any event, no, the Reagan administration. Fred Kahn was then down in Washington leading the effort to deregulate the airlines. Isn't that right? Yes. Uh, He he was chairman of the Civil Aeronautics Board and uh, pushed forward with deregulating prices and uh, and entry. And I mention it because of the fact that that caused a lot of unhappiness among Cornell faculty because the wonderful Ithaca Airport that previously had nonstop flights several times a day to Washington, D.C., they disappeared. And in fact, nowadays, if you want to go to Cornell, you fly to Syracuse, New York, and then find your way from there. 
Well, we had Mohawk, which flew to New York and Washington, I believe. Uh, the last time I tried to go to Ithaca, there was nothing. I flew to Syracuse. No, that's right. That's the way it is now, for sure. So um, you did your BA in economics after moving over from engineering and then graduate school. Yes. Uh, I went to Yale for my uh, for my PhD uh, right after I graduated in, 1970, in 1968, and I completed my PhD at Yale in 1972. And your dissertation was a behavioral theory of public utility regulation, is that right? Yes, it was, uh, it focused on the political economy of uh, uh, public utility regulation and uh, the behavior of regulatory agencies and their interactions with various interest groups, including, of course, the firms they regulated. Oh, interesting. And who was your committee? I had two primary thesis advisors, uh, uh, Alvin Klavoric, who is still there. Mm -hmm. He's in the economics department and in the uh, and in the uh, law school, uh, and uh, Dick Nelson, uh, who was at Yale at that point and uh, eventually went to uh, Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he worked primarily on uh, evolutionary economics with uh, mm -hmm. uh, with Sid Winter, but uh, he gave a very interesting graduate I.O. course, which was quite different from the I.O. the industrial organization courses offered most other places. So you receive your Ph.D., from Yale, and then what was your first job out of graduate school? Uh, I was lucky when I went on the job market, I guess in late 1971 and early 1972, I, I had a lot of offers, uh, and I found MIT to be uh, the most interesting and the most friendly and supportive place that I visited, so I chose to go to MIT. And obviously it fit well because you, other than sabbatical leaves, you spent your whole career there, haven't you? My entire career has been at MIT except for uh, a few leaves. So let me turn to another important uh, aspect of your professional life, that uh, an extended leave of absence for 10 years to the Sloan Foundation. So why and how did you go there, and, and what was the experience like after being in academia for years? Well, it was an interesting uh, uh, decision, I guess, uh, uh, and it came about by accident. I was reading Science Magazine, and there was an ad uh, for a new CEO, president and CEO of the Sloan Foundation. And, and I'd done some work with the Sloan Foundation over mm -hmm. time, uh, and I went up to see Bob Solo, who was on the Sloan Foundation's Board of Trustees, and I said, mm -hmm. is this for real, or are you just putting this ad in because you have to put ads in all over the place? He said, no, no, we haven't, uh, we haven't chosen anyone. Uh, I'll send in your resume if you want. So I said, yeah, send it in. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. And push came to shove. I was interviewed several times, and they offered me the job. Uh, and then I decided, gee, if I'm going to ever do anything different, I was just turned 60. This is the mm -hmm. time to do it. The Sloan Foundation's a, historically a very academic foundation, supports right. a lot of academic research, university research, and uh, I decided to give it a try. So was it a difficult transition in any way, or was it just unambiguously positive in all dimensions? Uh, I, I would say that it was at first it was shocking because I wasn't sure exactly what I was supposed to do, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'd never 
run an organization with all those responsibilities before. I'm not only for the people and the grants, but you know we had a two billion dollar endowment that had mm-hmm. to be managed properly. Uh, so it it took me a while to get to know everyone, to get my feet uh, firmly on the ground, and to decide uh, what what if any new programs we would we would implement. And over the next year, 18 months, I closed a number of existing programs and then uh, started a number of programs, uh, including programs in economics uh, and a program in uh, mm-hmm. energy, energy and the environment. And I assume you, you enjoyed life in New York City? You know, I grew up in New York. New York has, from my view, pluses and minuses. There's a lot mm-hmm. to do, yeah. <laughs> and, which is nice. Uh, but, you know, it's a big urban city that uh, has... Uh, uh, its own issues associated with with crime and uh, uh, and uh, noise and uh, sometimes dirt. But yeah, it's an exciting place to be. We actually kept our house in in Brookline, uh, mm-hmm. and we came back for a few days every month. And uh, MIT had an office for me, so I stayed in touch with uh, MIT during that that period of time as well. Oh, that's great. Now. Your successor is not an economist. He's from the natural science world. What about your predecessors? Um, what was sort of the typical uh, background of your predecessors as president and CEO of Sloan? Well, first of all, Sloan, Alfred P. Sloan was the president from the time the foundation was created in the mid-1930s until uh, he died in the early 1960s. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh so he he ran it basically uh my immediate predecessor was uh Ralph Gomery uh who had been the chief scientist at IBM mm-hmm. and he he had that position for i think 18 and a half years uh and then there were there were there were maybe two or three or four people in between Sloan and uh and and Ralph uh there was someone from Princeton, a professor from Princeton, whose name is escaping me now, who was the president, and a, a couple of other uh, academics. So consistently, the president and CEO for quite a time now has been an academic. Yes. Uh, I would say, except for Sloan himself, yeah. they've all been academics. I include mm-hmm. Ralph Gomery as you know, an academic in the sense that uh, he supervised a large uh, a portfolio of, uh, of of technical basic research. So let's turn to regulatory economics. I mean, there have been tremendous changes, certainly in the world of regulatory policy, since you were doing your work uh, at Yale and your PhD research. Um, can you comment on the most prominent changes or trends, not so much in regulatory economics initially, but in regulatory policy? Well, I, I think certainly in the the sectors that interest me most, which are electric power and uh, other uh, energy sectors, oil and natural gas, the the big change that has taken place uh, in the last twenty or twenty five years has been uh, restructuring these industries so that, that we could rely more on competition and uh, and less on regulation. Uh, you know, it started with uh, the natural gas industry uh, and the oil industry, and then during the 1980s and 1990s, and ultimately around 2000, uh, it resulted in 
restructuring and the creation of competitive wholesale electricity markets and retail competition uh, in many U.S. states and in Europe and in other countries. Now, I, I assume that there were a variety of factors that brought about those changes in the in regulatory policy in those different sectors. Is there sort of a, an overall factor across all the different sectors that brought about the demand and then then the actual implementation of these regulatory reforms? I don't think there was a common thread. It was more a time series profile. Uh-huh. So the first industries to be deregulated, by deregulated I mean the government stops controlling prices and stops restricting entry, mm-hmm. uh, was the airlines, the trucks, right. uh, and the railroads. And, and there had actually been quite a long uh, uh, academic literature and policy discussions about those industries going back uh, in, into the 1970s, certainly. Uh, after those industries were restructured and deregulated, uh, some policymakers start to turn to others. And one they turned to was the electric power sector, which uh, was the largest sector that was still subject to uh, traditional uh, regulation, uh, an industry structure where there was extensive vertical integration. And uh, I think it was people in the Reagan administration said, well, why don't we just deregulate that industry too? Mm -hmm. And uh, my colleague Dick Schmalenzi and I ended up writing a a book which started as a report for the government called Markets for Power explaining what kinds of restructuring had to be accomplished to create truly competitive wholesale electricity markets and what the what the alternative options might be and I I think we published that book in 1983 uh, and uh, there wasn't too much interest at that, at that particular time uh, I think what stimulated a lot of interest actually was the Public Utility Regulatory Policy Act PERPA which was mm-hmm. uh, began being implemented at about that time early in the 1980s and, and, and it, allow, it allowed for the first time independent power producers to come into the market under restricted uh, terms and conditions. And, it, and PERPA, I think, ended, as a sort of, ended up being sort of a can opener that gradually opened more and more the opportunities for competitors to come, come into the market. Uh, I think as well the, restructure, the privatization and restructuring in the UK of the electric power industry, which occurred in the, during the 1990s, mm-hmm. uh, was a model that uh, influenced uh, a number of state regulators here, especially the state regulators in California. So a lot of what you've described, um, the changes in regulation, uh, began really, it sounds like, in the Reagan administration. Is there an identifiable pattern since then? In other words, is it during Republican administrations that we see more such initiatives and is that then their pushback the other direction during Democratic administrations? Or is it not identifiable on partisan uh, terms? I think the reality is that airlines and interstate trucking and rail freight were done under the Carter administration. Mm-hmm. And at least airlines was supported by by Ted Kennedy, uh, Mr. Justice Breyer, who is now yep. a Supreme Court justice, uh, served as the staff leader for a study of uh, airline regulation and deregulation uh, in, in the 1970s, brought down there by Kennedy. So 
I wouldn't say that it was uh, a particularly a, a Republican-initiated activity. There, there was there was pretty broad agreement, at least in those three sectors, that uh, the 1930s regulatory institutions really didn't make much sense. They were mm-hmm. leading to higher prices and higher costs, and that uh, deregulating them uh, made a lot of public policy sense. So these have been bipartisan initiatives. If we were talking about environment rather than regulatory policy, I would observe the same going back uh, decades ago, that they were bipartisan initiatives, but now in this era of extreme political polarization, particularly around climate change, uh, it's very partisan. Has, Has the political polarization also infected uh, Washington debates on regulatory policy more broadly, or has that not happened? Well, I think it's certainly become more partisan. Uh, and uh, it, it's particularly partisan with regard to to climate change policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has had a significant effect on the ways in which the electric power sector in the U.S. is... Uh, uh, adapting to climate change and implementing policies to to mitigate climate change, and and because of partisanship, there's a lot of difference between the blue states and the red states. Yes, uh, which didn't really uh, uh, exist in the past. So I mean, turning, I, let me let, let me note. I you know I, yeah. as you know, I was involved with the uh, the the creation and implementation of the cap and trade system for sulfur dioxide emissions by electric power companies. I was on the Acid Rain Advisory Committee, and, and right. it, it was completely nonpartisan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, there were differences of opinion, but they weren't partisan dif- differences of opinion. Right. No, the proposal for the SO2 allowance trading system uh, for everything that became the Clean Air Act amendments in 1990 came out of the George H.W. Bush White House sent to an initially resistant Democratic Congress, as I recall. So let's turn to today somewhat, because you you were mentioning climate change policy. Uh, In terms of energy policy even more broadly, uh, what's your assessment of the current U.S. administration's uh, policy initiatives? It's only been a year that we've had this administration in place, but is there anything you could say about that? Well, uh, you know, I think think the administration has its you know, heart in the right place in the sense that we need to adopt policies that will mitigate, reduce, and eventually eliminate uh, greenhouse gas emissions. They've adopted policies which I would consider to be largely non-market-based policies. They've resisted uh, pricing carbon emissions. And I, I think that significantly complicates uh, moving forward in, a, uh, in an efficient way. The absence of a national policy uh, makes it even worse because uh, rather than having a coherent U.S. policy, we have states that have adopted their own policies and states that have resisted any policies, and 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 that's become kind of a mess in my view. I mean, essentially, the the blue states, in particular the West Coast, the Northeast, and to some degree the Upper Midwest, are the ones that have put in place climate policies of one kind or another, and then the Typically, the red states have not. Isn't that the pattern? That's exactly the patterns. If you look yeah. on the map, it's Vermont, Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, 
Virginia, if you go west, it's Illinois, then uh, California, maybe Oregon, but they are, those are the blue states uh, that have always been quite activist on environmental issues. Uh, and uh, uh, other states, uh, uh, especially states with a lot of coal, uh, are resisting uh, uh, climate policy. Yeah, I mean, if we look at a map uh, of the various states painted red or blue, geographically, it's a relatively small share of the landmass that would be painted blue as democratic. But if we look at it in terms of population, or more importantly, in terms of gross domestic product and hence CO2 emissions uh, tightly linked with that, it's actually a very substantial, it's that more than a majority of the country. Yes, that's true, and yeah, and there are states on the on the on the margins that have and mm-hmm. reluctantly, like Arizona and a few other states, adopting uh, measures to reduce carbon emissions. So I think it's more than uh, than a majority. Mm-hmm. Now I you know I focus primarily on on the electric power sector, and 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 that's what I'm most knowledgeable about. And in a way, that's where we made we've made the most progress. But that's very important because. Mm-hmm. Much of the rest of the strategy is to first, well, first to clean up the electricity sector to make it net zero, whatever exactly that means, uh, and then to use clean electricity in other sectors to electrify those sectors so that they can be reduced by fossil fuels. And, you know, then in transportation, to use some mix of uh, electric vehicles and alternative fuels to, to decarbonize that sector. So... The, in a way, if you think of there being a first step, it, it, it is decarbonizing the electric power sector. And, and that's proceeding slowly. Yeah, but it's, it's been in, in the United States and in other parts of the world, the, the low-hanging fruit, um, lower costs available, particularly in the U.S. because of natural gas. I mean, with the, with the decrease in CO2 emissions from the electricity sector because of the massive shift that's taken place, because of hydraulic fracturing from coal to natural gas in some parts of the country, the transportation sector is now the number one uh, emitting sector in the country, not the electricity sector. Right. They're pretty close on on average. Yeah. The electricity sector's at least been moving in the right direction since 2005. Uh, You'll probably see reports, if they're not already out, that, that CO2 emissions increased between 2020 and 2021 in the electric power sector and in the uh, transportation sector. However, remember, 2020 was right. a year when we had a very significant economic contraction right. and uh, uh, demand for, for electricity and oil and gas declined uh, declined uh, as well. Uh, it's not just natural gas. I mean, I've, I've done some work on fracking. I mean, natural mm-hmm. gas uh, replacing coal was a big deal. Of course, there are those who are concerned that the methane emissions uh, mm-hmm. Uh, at least partially and maybe fully compensate for those CO2 reductions. Uh, but it's also been uh, uh, the expansion of uh, wind and solar generation, mm-hmm. uh, which has been growing very, very quickly, uh, in, in part because the costs have come way down for those facilities, in part because of state policies, and in part because of federal policies, so tax incentives and uh, other incentives. So I, I, I think... I did a calculation, a back-of-the-envelope calculation, about a year ago, and I think it came out to be about two-thirds natural gas and the rest uh, wind wind and solar. And I bet it's, 
we look at 2021, I bet it's going to be closer to 50-50. And you, you make another interesting point, namely that if we're to look at the life cycle of natural gas, um, then the difference in greenhouse gas uh, radiative forcing between natural gas and coal is not as dramatic as it appears at first blush in terms of the CO2 emissions that are involved when those two fuels are burned. Right. But, you know, as you know, though, we, methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas, you know, over, let's say, a 20-year period than, right. than is CO2. So By uh, far. One has, to, one has to consider uh, methane leaks as well. Actually, yes. when I was at the Sloan Foundation, I, we, we ended up supporting quite a bit of research that the Environmental Defense Fund was leading on measuring uh, methane leaks uh, from, from the wellhead to the burner tip. And, and that's been a big challenge, is, is measuring methane releases. Yes, there are all kinds of different ways of doing it, from the ground, from the air. They're, they're now mm -hmm. going to use satellites to, uh, to measure methane emissions. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, in regard to global climate change policy, looking around the world or, or limited to the United States, whichever you prefer, would you put yourself in the optimist or the pessimist camp in terms of current and future progress that's likely to be made? So I guess I'm in the somewhere between. I mean, I'm I'm pessimistic about the U.S. adopting a a coherent greenhouse gas mitigation policy over mm -hmm. the next few years. Uh, I'm I'm more confident of uh, the Europeans doing this, and perhaps even China mitigating its its emissions. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are market forces at work that are going to help. Uh, mm -hmm. in, 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 and I'll, I'll just mention a couple. First, I've already mentioned the, the declining costs of wind and solar. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's important, even with no constraints. At, at least work, work we've done at MIT suggests you get quite a bit of, in, in the long run, diffusion of wind and solar into the system just on straight economic grounds. There's a lot of R&D going on on uh, other technologies and uh, electricity that do not produce CO2 emissions. There's interest in small nuclear plants, uh, and uh, there's uh, interest in alternative fuel cycles, the alum cycle, which uh, uh, basically uses CO2 to drive a turbine and then sequesters it. There's work going on on carbon capture and sequestration. So there's a lot of stuff going on, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think we're suffering, especially in the U.S., from the, the lack of a, a really coherent set of policies to which the entire country is committed. So you're a technological optimist and a policy pessimist? Yes, I guess that's the case. And so let me turn, put aside the technology and the policy. There's one other uh, set of changes that have been taking place that have been really quite dramatic, and that is youth movements of climate activism, most prominently in the United States and Europe in 2019, somewhat in hiatus because of the pandemic in 2020. But then they came to the fore again in Glasgow uh, during the annual conference of the parties. Greta Thunberg, but not just her, much more broadly, uh, young people seem to be much more agitated and activist on climate policies than 
previous generations, surely. What's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism? Well, look, I think it's great that uh, young people have recognized uh, climate change as a threat to the globe, to our way of way of life, and that they have uh, uh, kept uh, their concerns bubbling in the in the policy arena. One of the ways that those concerns are being articulated now, aside from marching on on Parliament and so on, is the private you know companies like Google and Microsoft and uh, Walmart even and others have made uh, decarbonization commitments and they're out there supporting investments in uh, in wind and uh, and solar and energy efficiency and I mm-hmm. I, I think that reflects uh, in part the the views of their employees, but also of their customers. Now, one question I wonder about, and I'm interested in your opinion, is whether what we're seeing is a cohort effect, in which case, as these people get older, rather than demonstrating in the streets, they'll be inside the rooms where the decisions are made, or whether it's an age effect, and as they get older, they will become more conservative and won't be so activist. Do you have any sense or what's your guess of which it is? No, I, I, I think it's the former. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think as, as that generation uh, becomes older, uh, has p- decision-making positions in, uh, in, in government uh, and industry, I, I think they will have an increasing impact on, uh, on public policy. Uh, I suppose there's always this old view that uh, when you're really young, you're a leftist, and by, by the time you're really old, you're <laughs> very conservative. But I, I think the general view that they're concerned, uh, I, I don't think that's going to disappear uh, at all. But they don't have really the the reins on, uh, on power at the moment. But that's an optimistic note on which to to bring this discussion to a conclusion. So... Thank you very much, Paul, for taking time to join us today. You're welcome, Rob. Nice to chat with you. Our guest today has been Paul Joskow, the Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics Emeritus at MIT and formerly the President and CEO of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.keep.hks.harvard.edu.